There was a, a little guy sitting in a restaurant eating supper, minding his own business, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this great big bruiser comes in and whack, knocks him out of his chair and says, that was a karate chop from Korea. The little guy thinks, what was that all about? He, he gets up back in his chair and starts eating again, and without warning, whack, the big bully chops down on him again and says, that was a judo chop from Japan. Well, by now, the little guy has had enough, and he leaves the restaurant. He's gone for 30 minutes. Then he returns, and then suddenly, whack, the little guy knocks the big guy to the ground, and he's out cold. The little guy looks at the waitress and says, when he comes to, tell him that was a crowbar from Sears. <laughs> uh, it is human nature to want to get even. To return evil for evil, as Romans 12, 17 speaks of. And our assignment from God is to extend grace to other people. The way God has extended grace to us. We need a fresh awakening of understanding and valuing God's grace. An appreciation of grace will motivate us to holy living. It will propel your outreach to the lost. It can bridge and resolve conflicts and provide healing in relationships. When we get grace, we will see individual lives and churches everywhere recalibrated, mobilized to fulfill our eternal mission. We must not grow jaded, failing to be awed by what Christ has done for us, but we must always be still amazed by grace. Simply put, valuing God's grace will fuel a lifestyle response of grace. So let's look first at the fact that grace must be discovered. Grace is not an excuse to, to minimize sinful behavior, but instead it's an incentive to motivate selfless behavior. There was a, an element of people in the early church in Rome who suggested that one need not grow in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, but could simply remain at the starting status point without maturing or, or, or bearing fruit. In fact, this philosophy was so distorted that it suggested that the more you sin, the more grace you would receive, and the better off you would be spiritually. This twisted thinking infiltrated the first century church, and it deceived some, and, and today it still misleads some in the 21st century church. They confuse God's grace as a green light to sin freely and do whatever one desires, even apart from God's will, because, hey, after all, I'm already forgiven. And Romans 6 begins with this rhetorical question. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. When our daughter Jennifer was about four years old, I was speaking at a revival service at the, the Bethlehem Church of Christ in, in Winchester, Ohio. When I spoke, Jenny was sitting beside my mom and working on a coloring book, which my mom had provided. And in my message, I was reading the verses in Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul, in autobiographical honesty, described his struggle to live the Christian life consistently. He said, the things I don't want to do, 
those are the things I do. And the things I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And Jen looked up from her coloring book and agreed loudly, I know, Daddy. <laughs> but that is not exactly the place where you want to hear any agreement or a, a hearty amen from, from anyone, especially from those who know you best. No one is more acutely aware of my weaknesses than I am. And we should never try to project a, a false attitude of having it all together, but instead we must each humbly acknowledge the reality of an authentic struggle to live as Christ lived. We can echo the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. Next to Jesus, my, my favorite individual in the Bible is John, the beloved disciple. Think about how great it would have been to be Jesus' best friend on earth. And that's what John was. And John was transformed from being one of the sons of thunder into becoming known as the apostle of love. I, too, am attempting to undergo a, a similar metamorphosis personally. And my goal is to move from being instinctively judgmental to becoming impulsively generous and, and grace-extending. In the movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray's character is trapped in snowy Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Each day he wakes up and it is Groundhog Day all over again. And he concludes that he can use this discovery to take advantage of the locals. Since there will be no February 3rd, there are no consequences for his actions. So he, he robs a bank, leads the police on a chase in a stolen truck, and just generally mistreats people for his own advantage. Very selfish. However, as the movie goes on, he undergoes a transformation, and he really has a change of heart. Now he uses this knowledge to begin giving cash to a beggar. He resuscitates a dying man. He begins to serve others and use his vantage point of knowing already their needs so that it would be a platform to doing good rather than taking advantage of them. You see, when we get grace, it changes us. Grace must be discovered. J.W. McGarvey, one of the, the founders of Cincinnati Christian University, wrote that after becoming Christians, it must be that righteousness becomes the rule of life and sin the painful, mortifying, humiliating, heartbreaking exception. Sin is no longer to be our way of life, but only an occasional slip from the proper, firm footing of the path of righteousness. Jude 4 reads, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. When I was 23, I was a minister in a small town about an hour east of Cincinnati. And one afternoon while studying in my office at church, I heard a loud voice outside yelling, and I, I hurried outside to see what was wrong. 
And across the street from the church building, an older man was screaming obscenities at his aged wife who was pushing a lawnmower across the lawn. She had missed a few blades of grass, and he was letting her know about it in no uncertain terms. Well, a few months later, this same neighbor phoned me at 10 a.m. with a request. He informed me that early that morning, his wife had suffered a brain aneurysm, had been taken to Christ Hospital in the city. The hospital had called and asked him to come quickly to be by her side. Could you give me a ride to the hospital, he asked. I told him, I'll be right there. And quickly, I phoned my wife, Johnny, to inform her of this sudden, dramatic change in plans. And she murmured, that poor man, I want to go along and and help too. So immediately, I picked up Johnny. We pulled into our neighbor's drive. We offered comfort to a man who had never been a very sensitive husband. Rapidly, urgently, I guided our Chevrolet closer to our solemn destination. As we approached 275, an unusual question came from the dying woman's husband. Aren't you going to stop for lunch? (laughs) Wide-eyed, I stared over at Johnny. I said, "Uh, no, no, we don't need to stop. We're not hungry anyway. Well, I am, he asserted. Okay, I said, I I guess we could go through the drive-thru at Wendy's. Wendy's, he snorted. I want to go to Ponderosa. And so we stopped for a leisurely lunch at Ponderosa. Johnny and I were stunned. We ate quickly without much appetite or enjoyment. And then we waited as we watched our neighbor make multiple trips to the salad bar and each time returning with a a brimming plate. Never before or since have I witnessed such self-centered disregard for the death of someone. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that we could become indifferent to the death and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ? Could we view this time around his table as something overly familiar and routine? Are we ever guilty of reducing his excruciating torture to a benign historical event? Do we ever put our appetites ahead of respecting his sacrifice and honoring him above all else? Have we found ourselves reluctant to spend time by his side, preferring to seek satiation from the things of the world? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 express what our lifestyle response to grace should be. It says, for Christ's love compels us, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Warren Wiersbe asserted, the Christian isn't sinless, but he should sin less and less and less. Dwight Moody was once approached by a critic who taunted, why do you keep asking for God to fill you with his spirit? You've already prayed that prayer. And Moody responded, because I leak. And so do I, and so do you. We need the Lord to fill us with his spirit 
again. Let us discover afresh the meaning of his grace. And it will redirect the trajectory of our lives. 1 Peter 2.24 sums it up like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Valuing God's grace will fuel a lifestyle response of grace. Grace must be discovered, but not only must grace be discovered, we also see that grace must be displayed. Colossians chapter 3, 2 and following say, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. The way we live shouts either our understanding of grace or our lack of appreciation for grace. When I was in second grade, I was in Cub Scouts, and on a dark, rainy evening, I returned home and my mom met me at the door with some sobering news. Scamper, my dog, had gotten off the chain and, and was loose. My dad was out driving in the rain looking for my beloved pet. My friend who brought me home, Johnny Demetroff, his mother offered for me to go to their family's hilltop restaurant on Glenway while the search was being conducted. In true Greek fashion, she told me, eat, it will make you feel better. But it didn't, I didn't feel like eating at all. When I returned home, there was good news and bad news. My dad explained that Scamper had been found and was alive, but he had been injured, apparently hit by a car, and it appeared that the license plate had slit my little dog's forehead. My dad had generously driven Scamper to the nearby vet hospital where my pet dog was at that very moment undergoing life-saving surgery for a fractured skull. Well, all of you animal lovers will be relieved to know that little Scamper pulled through the pricey procedure with no health limitations, lived to a ripe old age of 14 years, that's 98 years in, in, in dog years. I didn't think much more about that incident until some 20 years later, after eating at my parents' house while visiting around the table, my mom made an offhanded statement that pierced me to the core of my being. She said rather flippantly, that's kind of like when your dad ran over Scamper. <laughs> Stunned, I said, what? She goes, yeah, that's like when Sam hit Scamper. Now it all made sense. How could I have been so blind? It looks like he was hit by a car and the license plate slid his forehead. Well, of course. Who else on earth would know that little detail except the perpetrator? And that explains why my dad was so willing to 
pony up several hundred dollars for major skull surgery on a mongrel dog. And they concealed it from me for over two decades. But finally, the dirty little family secret was out in the open. I tell that story because it illustrates unselfish giving motivated by love. There may have been some guilt motivation in there also, but my dad still displayed some sacrificial grace. And I think there was some level of grace on my part in forgiving him for nearly killing my childhood pet. The grace we have been shown by others pales in comparison to the grace that God has showered on us. Can you fathom what Jesus has done for us? Even though we rejected God, Christ willingly endured the punishment we deserved. Jesus came to earth first and foremost to suffer the punishment for our sin. And in some inexplicable way, when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, he incurred the full wrath of God for our sin. He displayed grace, and he now calls us to die to self daily and display his grace. Grace must be displayed. Grace is so unexpected, so undeserved, so precious, so divine. After God reclaims us, we have a responsibility to honor his sacrifice, his love, his forgiveness. And that means we don't take his grace for granted. While God's grace is free, it isn't cheap. It came at the tremendous cost of Christ's life. And it must never be viewed as an excuse for sinning, but always as an incentive to avoid sinning. Valuing God's grace will fuel a lifestyle response of grace. Grace must be discovered. Grace must be displayed. And finally, grace must be dispensed. There's a great passage in Titus chapter 2 that really sums this up. Beginning in verse 11, it explains our duty to do good and dispense God's grace to others. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify to himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That doesn't happen instinctively. Forgiving goes against the grain of our natural reactions when wronged. Our, our human tendency is not to forgive, it's to get even. A man was eating in a truck, stop, a truck stop when three rough-looking bikers walked in. As they passed his table, the first biker extinguished his cigarette in the man's mashed potatoes and then laughed and sat down at the counter. The second biker picked up the old man's milk and spit in it. The third biker turned the man's plate over before laughing and joining the others at the counter. Without saying a word to the laughing bikers, 
The man got up, paid his bill, left quietly, and one of the bikers said to the waitress, not much of a man, was he? The waitress replied as she looked out the window, not much of a truck driver either. He just backed his rig over three motorcycles. <laughs> That's human nature. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. You embarrass me, now I'm going to get even with you. We've all learned the hard way that Christian people don't always act like Christian people. I'm certain that everyone within the sound of my voice has experienced the stinging pain of unfair treatment, disparaging distortions, thoughtless insensitivity. Regardless, grace must be dispensed. On the cross, Jesus had the ultimate authority and, and power to silence, sentence, and supplant in an instant those who were abusing him. And yet he showed unfathomable restraint. His example of forgiveness is, is unparalleled. He, the creator, was being mocked by frail humans, the creation. He, the, sunless, the sinless son of God, was being accused by fallen, carnal, sinful men. He, the innocent, was being required to die for the guilty. The injustice is incomprehensible. The pure was serving as a sacrifice for the profane. This divine contrast is so compelling. At the start of the crucifixion, both thieves on either side of Jesus were hurling insults and, and jeering at Jesus. Three hours later, one of the thieves has done a radical 180-degree turnaround, and that thief is admitting his own guilt, and he's asking Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, what brought about this unexpected transformation? My conjecture is that when the thief heard Jesus extend forgiveness to those responsible for ridiculing him, torturing him, that thief became convinced that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. This is the same Jesus who has forgiven us for our sinful mistreatment of him. Listen to how the Bible describes God's forgiveness. Micah 7, 19. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Jeremiah 31, 34 declares the Lord, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Sometimes when dealing with the topic of forgiveness, for some the greatest difficulty can be in forgiving self. And God has already forgiven us. Satan, the accuser, wants to spotlight our failures in an effort to make us feel that we are worthless. And there's no reason to try to do what's right. It's just too hard to do. And we need to forgive ourselves, and we need to forgive others. The Bible's unmistakable in explaining that our forgiveness is contingent on whether or not we are willing to forgive those who have wronged us. Beloved Lexington minister Wayne Smith once joked, I know we're not supposed to hate anyone, but if that rule ever changes, I've already got my guy picked out. 
at least I think he was joking. Yeah. <laughs> Forgiving others is not recommended. It is required. Listen to Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. I realize that some people can be really tough to forgive. And I realize that sometimes we are those very people who are tough to, to forgive. When I was growing up, our, our church had a program called Four Family Fellowship. And the story that I'm about to tell you reveals that growing up, I had more creativity than maturity. My family was at the Four Family Fellowship, and as usual, the parents were eating together in the dining room, and the kids were relegated around a card table in a back bedroom, and the hostess came to our table carrying a piping hot plate of chicken cordon bleu. Now, as an adult, I like chicken cordon bleu, but when I was younger, all I could think was, why did they damage that perfectly good piece of chicken by stuffing it with ham and drowning it with that sauce? I didn't want to eat it, but I didn't want to hurt the hostess's feelings. So faced with a moral dilemma, I devised a quick plan. My brother and I were seated at the, the table with the host's sons, Glenn and Bruce, and Bruce was the youngest in the group, and I began to carefully cut my chicken into bite-sized portions, then created the version I pointed to a picture on the wall behind Bruce and said, hey, where did you get that picture? And when he turned around, I slid three or four pieces of chicken onto his plate. He didn't notice, turned back to answer me. And about that time, my brother decided he liked my idea better than choking down his chunk of chicken cordon bleu. So he quickly cut up his meat and we began alternating, asking Bruce, endless questions about the furnishings of this exquisite back bedroom. I'd ask a question, slide over three or four bites onto his plate, and then my brother would. So as the meal went on, Bruce kept eating and answering methodically until he had eaten my chicken breast, my brother's chicken breast, and half of his own. About that time, his mother entered the room with a cheerful, who wants dessert? We all chorused, I do, I do. She took a look at Bruce's half-eaten serving and scolded, no ice cream for you, Bruce. You didn't eat all your food. I told you this was bad. <laughs> Poor old Bruce answered, but I feel full. Isn't that terrible? And I hate to admit it, but I ate what should have been Bruce's ice cream, and he had none. They say confession is good for the soul, and I do feel a little bit better. If, if I ever see Bruce again, I promise I will make restitution and give him some gift cards to Grater's Ice Cream. I just hope that as an adult, Bruce is not a third-degree black belt karate instructor with anger issues seeking revenge. May we take the grace that we have received and dispense it to those who are in need. Let me, let me close with this example that my ministry friend Dick Alexander relates following a, a personal experience. He said, one day I was called to the hospital to visit a woman whose husband was dying. 
a man was in the ICU. I, I visited with them, and then we went out to the waiting room, and a few minutes later, the doctor came out and gave the news that this woman didn't want to hear. Her husband had just passed away. We waited a little while, and then they came and got us. We went back into the room where the body of the woman's recently deceased husband was still present. There was a nurse in the room who was washing this man's face, preparing for the undertakers to come and take his body. And as she washed his face, she was doing it so tenderly, with so much compassion that you would have thought she was lovingly caring for her own father. A chaplain arrived and ushered us into a side room. The nurse went with us. The chaplain's words were comforting and helpful. Then he prayed, and when he finished praying, Dick said, I I looked up, and the nurse was sitting in the corner and had tears streaming down her face. He said, I walked downstairs with this new widow, walked her out to her car, and then I went back to the intensive care unit, and I sought out that nurse. I said to her, ma'am, I I just want to thank you. I, I don't know how you do this. You see people die here almost every day. I I don't know how you have this kind of compassion day after day. And she said simply, well, I'm a Christian. And she went on about her work. May we go on about our work of being dispensers of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, may we never let the old, old story grow stale, and lose its freshness and excitement. May we always be amazed by what you have done for us, by what you are doing in us, and by what you are preparing to do through us. In Jesus' name, amen.